All right, we're going to get started tonight. Uh, good evening and welcome to the final class session of Heroes of Our Faith. You made it. We got past Thanksgiving. Um, usually there's a tremendous amount of um, drop-off, right? So usually the last class session is like three people. And so congratulations for making it this far. But um, like I said at the at the first class, and I, I truly was, I wasn't trying to be weird about it, but I was genuinely surprised at the response that we got for this class. And so, um, yeah, seriously, thank you for jumping in on this. It takes a lot of work to put these classes together, but um, yeah, we were just really grateful that you saw the, the subject matter as worth your time um, or because your connection group kind of drug you here. Either way, uh, yeah, we're really glad that you jumped in. That being said, while tonight is our like the end of our official class sessions. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction of the book, there's still one more lesson that you can read on your own as we get into the 20th century. And then there's one more teaching that you can watch or listen to um, where Sarah introduces us uh, to a modern 20th century hero of our faith, uh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot. And maybe you've heard that name. Maybe you've heard of Jim Elliot, her uh, one of her husbands who was um, martyred in Ecuador. Well, Elizabeth isn't only famous because of Jim, but she is actually um, a force of nature in her own right. And so Sarah introduces us to Elizabeth Elliot. Fun little fact, by the way, if you have ever been influenced by the life of, of Tim Keller or Kathy Keller, you have actually indirectly been influenced by Elizabeth Elliot because she was one of their professors at, at uh, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And so uh, if you listen to Tim a lot or, or have read a lot of his stuff, you'll see that he references uh, Elizabeth a lot because she was the professor and friend. So um, yeah, Sarah is going to send that recording out probably this week-ish. Uh, we recorded it yesterday. So she'll send that out when it's ready. And then you'll also be able to um, fairly quickly, for sure, for this for the last recorded session on Elizabeth Elliot, but for the rest of these sessions as well, they, they are going to pop up on the Candeo Equipping Podcast. So if you didn't know, we have an equipping podcast. We do have an, an equipping podcast. We um, sporadically post on that. So don't, you know, set your schedule on that podcast. But there are other classes that are up on that as well that you can listen to. But this, this entire class, uh, the audio of that will be up on the equipping podcast. And so, but we'll send that out to you as well. So Tonight, what we're doing is we're stepping back to the 18th century, and we're looking at the, the life of George Lyle. Now, for the longest time, I pronounced it as Lyle, um, but it's actually Lyle, so George Lyle, and perhaps you're an overachiever as well, and not only did you read Lesson 5, but you also read the Appendix, uh, Appendix 1 as well, but with as we get into the 18th century here with, with Western chattel slavery kind of as the backdrop of George Lyle's life um, and is really a key component of this, I think it's still worth a few introductory comments um, just on the setting that we're going to find ourselves in tonight. And so uh, there, are, there are many, and, and we talked a little bit about this if you took the Christianity and culture class, that there are some who would point to the, the, Bible, um, the Bible's lack of condemning slavery, they would point to that as, as actually a reason why the Bible is outdated, uh, untrustworthy, and, and in some cases, the Bible's seen as immoral for that reason. And so um, 
the problem with that, though, is that, is that the view that looks at the Bible as, well, the, the Bible condones slavery, or at least it didn't condemn it, and so you can't trust it because it's immoral. That view actually fails to recognize uh, the difference between what we understand slavery, what it was here in the West, in America, and what slavery was in the Bible. And so just a few comments on that. And so while, while the kind of slavery that happened in America uh, was, was largely based, especially initially, on kidnapping, um, the kind of slavery that we encounter in the Bible is often a kind of indentured servitude. And so someone would find themselves, and it wasn't based on race. And so someone would find themselves in a tremendous amount of debt, and they would actually sell themselves to the, the person who held their debt in order to pay off that debt. And there, are, there, were, there were regulations in Scripture for actually how long that person could stay in that kind of indentured servitude. So it wasn't for life, um, and it was, it was debt-based. It wasn't race-based. Whereas in, here in America, slavery was uh, for sure started largely by kidnapping, which the Bible explicitly condemns in Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, where it says, whoever kidnaps a person must be put to death, whether he sells him or the person is found in his possession. So in other words, you kidnap somebody, whether you're found with that person in your possession or they find you you know, late enough that you've sold that person off. Either way, the Bible's prescription on kidnapping is that the kidnapper is put to death. So while some might say that the Bible condones slavery, it, it explicitly condemns the kind of slavery that, that fueled uh, the African slave trade in America, uh, especially initially. And so while the New Testament doesn't condone or condemn slavery as you get into the New Testament, uh, what it does do is it regulates it, um, it acknowledges that it exists, and then it gives God-honoring parameters, God-honoring and humanity-preserving parameters around it. And then what we also see in the writings of Paul is that, is that this kind of indentured servitude slavery is actually used as a powerful metaphor to describe an aspect of the believer's relationship with Christ. And so uh, at at times, what you would actually see is that someone who had sold themselves into service to another person to pay off a debt actually experienced a, um, a level of security, safety, and care that they had not experienced up to that point and would actually go to their master and actually want to uh, basically sell themselves indefinitely into service to that master because the master was so good. And Paul uses that metaphor of, of being a bondservant to actually describe our relationship with Christ, that because Jesus is a good master, that we actually live under his, uh, in his service and under his authority uh, for eternity. And so, um, but chattel slavery in America did exist. And I, and I mentioned this towards the beginning of this week's lesson in the book, and, and it, it is a dark stain on America's history, absolutely. But what we also see is that, is that the light of the gospel, the light of the grace of the knowledge of Jesus Christ shines even in the darkest places. And so the dark backdrop of slavery in America serves to accentuate the light of the gospel and particularly the light of the gospel that shines through the life of George Lyle. And so George was born to his mother, Nancy, and his father, Lyle, uh, and he was born and raised as a slave along with his parents uh, on a plantation in Virginia, which was owned by a, um, by a British man named Henry Sharp, who was, who was a British loyalist. And so he lived in America, he lived in Virginia, but his, his allegiances were still to 
Britain. And, that, and Sharp was, was not only um, George Lyle and his family's slave owners, he was also a deacon at, Buck, at Buckhead Creek Baptist Church, which was pastored by Reverend, Reverend Matthew Moore. And it's at this point in the pre-Civil War South that while, while many churches in America, unfortunately, recognized and accepted the social norms and embodied the social norms of racial inequality, even within their congregations between whites and blacks, particularly Baptist churches became spiritual safe havens for uh, an, in, an increasing number of, of African Americans. And in, in fact, it was actually in Baptist churches in particular that many slaves came to faith and were given rights within the church that they didn't have in society in general. And so... Um, the th- things like slaves would be able to vote on congregational matters. And so uh, there, there's, a, there's a short book. I, I was going to say it's interesting. It's not, it's not exactly interesting. There are parts of it that are interesting. But if, you are, if you're interested, actually, the thing that's interesting about this book actually is, is, is the description of the, of the racial relationships within, the, within Baptist churches in the South pre-Civil War. It's actually pretty incredible. The book's called... Um, uh, Democratic Religion by Gregory Wills. And so if you're interested in those, in those racial relationships in, in the church pre-Civil War, uh, that would be a good book to jump in on. But, um, but, but, Af- but, but slaves could vote on congregational matters like church discipline, and they, they could actually bring to the congregation, they could bring up like the sins of their owners. You know, so if, so if, a, if a person was in the church and they were mistreating the slaves that they owned, a slave within the church could bring that up, and that that owner could be brought under church discipline as a result of the testimony of their slave, which was which was incredibly unique for that time. And it was in this Baptist church that uh, that George Lyle heard the gospel in 1773, and he later wrote this uh, as he was recounting his conversion. He said this: He said, "I saw my I saw my condemnation in my own heart." And I found no way wherein I could escape the damnation of hell, only through the merits of my dying Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which caused me to make intercession with Christ for the salvation of my poor immortal soul. And I full well recollect, I requested of my Lord and Master to give me a work. I did not, I did not care how mean it was, only to try to see how good I would do it. So again, this is not to say that uh, churches in America or churches in the South got the issue of racial inequality right, but it is to say that the light of the gospel still shines through the cracks of a broken world, right? And what's, what's amazing is that after, after George came to Christ, he was baptized in this church, and he actually became a member of this church. And after his conversion, he, continued, he, he, could, he grew in love for his fellow slaves, and he would actually encourage them to sing hymns and spirituals along with him. And then, and then while they were singing, he would stop them, and he would explain to them the lyrics that they were just singing, like the gospel truths that fellow slaves didn't have an understanding of, but he, he, was, he was growing in his knowledge and love for the Lord. And when, when Reverend Moore, who was the pastor of Buckhead Creek Baptist Church, when he noticed uh, Lyle's interest in the word of God, he called George to preach at, uh, before the congregation at their quarterly meeting. So think of, uh, think of members' meetings, 
in the South, right? They would have quarterly meetings where they'd get the whole church together and they would, they would discuss matters of discipline. They would, you know, admit new members and they would, they would talk about different issues. But they would also have messages and times of singing. And so uh, Reverend Moore asked George to come to the quarterly meeting and to preach the word to the congregation. And after hearing his preaching, uh, the church was blown away by George's preaching and it became clear to them that he was gifted for ministry. And so they did something that, that had not yet been done in America up to this point, but uh, they actually went to the, um, to the colonial officials of Georgia and they asked uh, to be able to basically ordain George as a pastor. And so George Lyle is actually the first uh, African-American pastor in America. And so uh, he's the first licensed minister of African descent. And, and this, so this happened in 1775, which is the same year that the Revolutionary War began. And so Henry Sharp, who was George's owner, uh, being a British loyalist, was going to join the British army in the Revolutionary War, which, which would have meant that he would have had to move to Savannah and take his, you know, take his family and all of his slaves with him. But remember, Henry Sharp was also a deacon in the church that George was, uh, was licensed uh, as a preacher, and recognizing George's gift actually granted George his freedom to be able to continue to exercise his gift and not uproot his family to have to move with Sharp and his family while he joined the war efforts. And so fast forward to, uh, to, to 1982, yeah, to 1782. Man, that'd be incredible. Um, and the British, so 1782, the British surrender uh, to the Americans, which also meant that the British were to surrender all of their interests in America, and, and in this kind of like final act of defiance, um, it's kind of hilarious actually. What the British did, uh, which was great, was uh, basically they surrendered to America, and America's like, yeah, get out of here, have nothing to do with us, and they're like, fine. But the last kind of thing that they did was was all the British uh, loyalists freed all of their slaves. You know, like they took the moral high ground, freed all of these slaves, and so. Uh, the Americans weren't happy about that. And so essentially what they tried to do is they tried to re-enslave these, uh, these African-American slaves um, before they got their freedom papers, uh, having been freed by their British owners. And it was at this point, actually, because Henry Sharp had already moved, it was at this point that Henry Sharp's children tried to re-enslave George Lyle. And kind of seeing this coming, George... Uh, in order to keep his wife and his children and him all together, he, he goes to a British colonel uh, whose name was Moses Kirkland, and he borrows $700, $700 uh, from Moses Kirkland, and he leaves Savannah with his family where he could then board a British ship uh, where they were evacuating troops. So then in 1782, Lyle and his family boarded a ship, and they land in Kingston, Jamaica. And it's there that George Lyle establishes a church in Jamaica, which over the next seven years, in, in his first seven years of ministry in Jamaica, more than 500 Jamaican slaves became Christians. Which means, check this out, you, you, I didn't know about George Lyle till like nine months ago, right? Maybe you're ahead of the curve on this. I didn't know this guy existed, you know, within the last year. Here's what this means. George Lyle was not only America's first black pastor, 
but he was also America's first international missionary. George Lyle was America's first international missionary going to Jamaica 10 years, a decade before William Carey, who, who was an Englishman and who was actually considered the father of modern missions, George Lyle went to Jamaica 10 years before William Carey ever left England. And so Lyle continued to minister, but he was eventually put in prison, actually, for, for preaching against the corrupt government of Jamaica. And he was eventually released and continued his ministry in Jamaica, raising up countless disciples uh, who, would, who would grow in their faith, grow in their love of the word, and who would eventually, many of them, uh, would actually take the gospel from Jamaica to Nova Scotia and Sierra Leone. So 45 years, nearly 45 years after landing in Jamaica, George Lyle died in 1828. So what can we learn from the faith and faithfulness of George Lyle? That's our question tonight. I have three points. Number one, we must continue to make the message of the gospel understandable to regular people in this generation. We must begin and continue to make the message of the gospel understandable to regular people in this generation. Say, where do you get that? So for all of the issues, there are plenty of issues. There, I mean, if, if, you wanna, if you wanna shoot shots at, at the American church pre-Civil War, you have plenty of ammunition to do that, right? But for all of the issues that the church had in America at that time, particularly Baptist churches, because of the nature, um, how do I say it? Because uh, Baptist churches had some of the least educated pastors. I wouldn't, not, not some of. They, they had the least educated pastors. And part of it was, it, uh, okay, real quick. So part of it was because other denominations, if you wanted to be a pastor, you had to like go away and be educated. You had, you had to go away for like seven years and get a degree, which in one sense makes sense. But in another sense, it's like, man, you have a seven-year delay to actually fill your pulpits with people. In Baptist churches, you had to go, I want to be a pastor. And they went, great, go for it, right? And it was just like, no education required, right? Now, a problem with that is that for a long time, uh, a kind of anti-intellectualism kind of would begin to exist that, that Baptist churches actually had to counteract, and I think have done a good job for sure. Um, but one of the benefits of having a less to uneducated, um, to having less uneducated pastors is that regular people can understand what they're saying, Right? And so they come and they hear these sermons from just regular guys who actually speak the language that they're talking about. And so this is one reason why so many African-American churches were, and honestly, even still today, are Baptist churches. That, that's how that happened, was because Baptist churches were led by preachers who actually spoke the language of regular people. And so many slaves would come to church with their owners and could actually understand the gospel for the first time and respond to it. Because, it, because the, gospel, the gospel is a message. We use the word gospel a lot. A lot of times we don't like stop and actually think about what that is. The gospel is, 
is first a message, and as a message, it needs to be understood by people. And if, if they're going to have any chance to actually respond to the contents of that message. Now, this sounds like the most obvious thing in the world to say, right? Like, if you want people to understand you, you need to make sure you're speaking the same language. That seems pretty intuitive. Uh, foreign missionaries will spend a tremendous amount of time in, in language training. Mark and Amanda just finished up their language training. They've been over there for a while, right? Spend a tremendous amount of time learning the language of the people that they're trying to reach. It makes total sense, but, but here's the thing. When it comes to evangelizing our own context, when it comes to evangelizing our own culture, it can be really easy for us to think that simply because we're both speaking the same regional language, like English, that that means we're speaking the same cultural language. When we're, we're currently, you've probably noticed, uh, we're currently in an overlap of a shifting culture. And that, that overlap's been taking place, it, it's, it's really not recent, but I'd say probably over the last 10 years, the language implications of our cultural shift are beginning, to mani- are beginning to manifest themselves quite a bit. In other words, what I'm suggesting that we should learn from George Lyle here is that as we look to share the gospel to the people in, in our day and age, we need to learn how to recontextualize. You might go, what, 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 is, what, what is contextualization? I, I really like Tim Keller's definition of contextualization. Here, here's what he says. I think it'll be up on the screen. He says, contextualization is giving people the Bible's answers, which they may or may not want to hear, to questions about life that people in their particular time and place are asking, in language and forms they can comprehend, and through appeals and arguments with force they can feel, even if they reject them. I think think it's easy for us to take for granted that for a long time America was built has been built, and in many ways, honestly, is still built at least with an underlying uh, awareness or commitment to Christian values. Now, this isn't to suggest that America is a Christian nation. There's actually a, a really great, man, you, uh, democratic religion, like three of you will probably read that. All of you should Google um, Michael Horton's uh, Gospel Coalition talk on why America is not a Christian nation. It is fantastic. Um, and he actually takes a biblical theological approach to it. And so it's, it's, it's biblically robust as well. But, but Christianity has, has at least been the religious scaffolding upon which our nation's sense of justice and morality has rested for, for a long time. And so therefore... Um, as a result, there, for a long time in America, everyone had underlying presuppositions that you could assume. And so all we used to have to do when we shared the gospel with people was connect the dots. Because, because they, they already, you could, you could assume that people in general had a belief in God, that they would have an understanding of sin, that you could assume some sort of positive understanding of justice, at least in a legal sense, right? You could assume some sort of respect for external objective truth, 
Like all these things you used to be able to assume, and then all you really had to do, because people kind of had a vague sense of God, a vague sense of sin, a vague sense of justice, a vague sense of external truth that isn't internally defined but is externally discovered, right? And all you had to do then was help them see how the gospel connected all these dots of things that they already believed. That's the way it used to be. But the reality today is that many of those dots have, have either eroded or don't exist at all. And so the assumptions that we used to be able to make about like the general starting point that we had with people when we talked to them about the gospel, we can't make those assumptions anymore. Which means to, to, simply, to simply tell someone, and this isn't, this isn't an untrue like, presentation of the gospel, but to simply tell people that you're a sinner before God and you need to accept Jesus, otherwise you'll spend an eternity in hell, that, that presentation of the gospel in 2023, almost 2024, the response that we're more often going to get is, well, big deal, because I don't believe in God. Uh, Jesus was maybe a nice guy, but what's that have to do with anything? Um, and hell is an oppressive construct invented to keep gullible people in check. You see, the dots that we used to be able to assume were there are no longer there. And so it's not just a matter of connecting the dots. Do you see the disconnect there? And so you go, well, then what's the way forward? I don't know. No, I'm kidding. Um, so <laughs> we, don't, we, don't, we, don't, um, we don't have a ton of time. I, I want to offer one suggestion, but uh, we're actually going to do an evangelism summit in February. Um, and this will be just a shameless plug, I suppose, for the breakout session I'm going to lead. So... Uh, <laughs> um, but on, on interpreting cultural narratives. But one, one suggestion in our current culture is that it would do us well to not only try to help people see the problem of their sin. Like the gospel, any presentation of the gospel has to include something about the problem, right? Which is sin. But my, what, what I want to suggest is that we actually need to get more specific when we talk about sin and actually help, de- help not only define it, but help people actually see how that actually connects in their life. To help them see their empty sources of misplaced hope. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that we never talk about sin. I'm not saying that. But to a modern Western person, the idea of sin generally only brings up like sins of commission bad things that you do, and, and generally when people think of sin, if, if they have any framework for it at all, is basically just like bad external behaviors, right? So to a modern person, when you say that you're a sinner, that, that you're a sinner and that you need Jesus, essentially what they hear you saying is that you're a bad person who does bad things, and I used to be that way, but I'm not that way anymore, you know? And so in other words, the modern idea of sin doesn't actually penetrate to the deep recesses of the heart. So when we talk about sin, people only think we're talking about actions. But the biblical teaching of sin says that, says that sin isn't just actions, but it's also attitudes and affections. Actually, I mean, you could make the case that, that sin is actually more about, about your attitudes and affections that simply manifest themselves in your actions later on down the road, right? Which means that sin isn't just doing bad things. But sin is making good things ultimate things. 
It's building your life. It's finding your identity and meaning and purpose. It's putting your ultimate hope in anything but God. Like that, that's actually the biblical definition of sin. The, the Bible refers to that as idolatry. And so essentially what, what I think would be helpful for us as we are sharing the gospel with people in our day, in our language, is to reframe the problem of sin as not, not, only, as not only actions of the hands, but actually as idolatry of the heart. That sin isn't breaking a law, but sin is actually having a disproportionate love for anything but God or anything above God. It's having a disproportionate hope in anything above God. You see, and, and, and this, is what, this is where people, people won't see the good news of the gospel as good if they don't actually understand the depth of the problem that we have. That, that the problem the gospel came to solve was not to help you do better things or be a nicer person. That the good news of the gospel is that the gospel doesn't make bad people good, it makes dead people alive. And that we have a deep idolatry problem in our heart. where We don't only do bad things, but we overlove good things. Now, if someone doesn't even believe in God, you can at least speak to that intuition, right? Like, you, you, don't, you don't need a belief in God yet to at least recognize that we all put our hope and our trust and our faith and our, our love in things. And then it, it's really not hard to help people see that in a million different ways, the insufficiencies of those things that we will tend to overlove, right? And so... We must continue to make the message of the gospel understandable to regular people in this generation. That's the first thing. Number two, these last two are much quicker. So uh, Christianity is not a white religion exported to a multi-ethnic world. And I won't belabor this point. You've already got Appendix 1 if you want to read that. Um, you can read that on your own. But, uh, but I, I, love, I love this quote from uh, Claude Acho, who's a who's a pastor at Church of the Resurrection in Charlottesville, um, not, not far actually from uh, where George Lyle grew up. Here, here's what he says. He says, the phenomenon of disentangling biblical Christianity from its distortions is the only way to understand one of the most miraculous developments in modern history, enslaved Africans' widespread embrace of the religion of their oppressors. You see, the... the, the one of the problems with the church in America, particularly the church in the South in the pre-Civil War era, was not that they actually had biblical justifications for slavery. It was that it was a distorted understanding of Scripture. It was actually biblical illiteracy. So interestingly enough, the very illiteracy that made the message of the gospel discernible to normal people is perhaps the same illiteracy that distorted the Bible to justify the enslavement of Africans in the first place. But what Claude Acho is saying is that if, if biblical Christianity truly was an oppressive religion, then you would expect that those oppressed by that religion would totally reject it. But African Americans for a long time have recognized that true biblical Christianity was not actually the religion of their oppressors 
It was the distortion of that Christianity that was the religion of their oppressors, and which is why African Americans could still embrace the Christianity that their oppressors claimed to have. You see, the influence of Christianity as the, as the only major world religion that's only spread out, and that's true. Christianity is the only major world religion that is actually fairly evenly spread out across the world. The reason for that is a result of the fact that the gospel transcends time, it transcends culture, and it transcends place. And it's the only major religion that isn't fundamentally sustained by the culture in which it exists. You see, the amazing thing, the, the amazing thing about, uh, about the gospel, the amazing thing about the Bible, honestly, is that, um, is that it offends everyone. <laughs> Which is actually an indicator that it's true, right? Because it's very convenient if a belief system offends most people, but not a certain group, right? Well, the gospel transcends culture, transcends time, transcends places. The Bible transcends all those things, and therefore, in different but various ways, will then offend every culture on this planet. So, we must continue to make the message of the gospel understandable to regular people in this generation, Christianity is not a white religion exported to a multi-ethnic world. And then finally, number three, few have the opportunity to go first, but we all have the opportunity to follow behind. So the goal tonight, actually the goal, <laughs> the goal throughout this entire class has not been, look at these great people, you should be like them. Like, that, that's a futile endeavor. There's, there's two, we, we've, we've covered four in our sessions, we'll cover six throughout the class as a whole. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who, you just look at their life and they're all better than us. Like, infinitely, you know, and so if, if the goal was, it's like, well, I need to learn about all these people and then I need to try really, really hard to become like all of them, you're gonna be crushed. You're gonna be crushed. So the goal tonight is not be like George Lyle. Leo. Lyle? Lyle. Good grief. <laughs> the golden eye is not be like George Lyle. That's impossible. He was an incredible man who God used in incredible ways. And so the call for us tonight isn't, isn't necessarily that we all need to be trailblazers like George. First black American pastor first American international missionary. I mean, those are two trailblazing uh, accomplishments, right? Now, some of you, perhaps, may be trailblazers, in a sense. But most of us won't. I'm not trying to sound like, you know, Dr. Seuss or the places you'll go kind of thing. Like, sometimes you will, but mostly you won't kind of thing, right? But... Instead, the goal is that we would see our brother's faithfulness in blazing those trails, both at home, here in America, and abroad, and that we would follow in his footsteps, that we, that we would follow his example of faith and faithfulness in the, in the spheres of influence that we do have, right? And so well, the, it, it's the case that, like, it's likely the case that 95% of us in this room will never move overseas for long-term mission work like George Lyle or like Mark and Amanda or like Logan and Maddie 
or like Dustin and Kelsey, right? Like, it, it, it actually is incredible. It's, it's really easy. I think if you live in the mountains, you probably stop seeing them. And they just become normal. It's actually pretty incredible that we have so many people going to the nations from our church. Like, we should praise God for that. But it's, it's most likely that most of us won't be that. Few will actually go. But all of us can follow in George Lyle's footsteps when it comes to international missions, because though few will go, all of us can pray, and most of us can give. All of us can pray for the Dustin and Kelsey's, the Mark and Amanda's, the Logan and Maddie's. All of us can pray. And honestly, most of us can give. Most of us can stay where we're at and in a sense, like hold the ropes, right? And support and fund and be gospel patrons like Sarah talked about last week and join them and participate with them in the work that they're doing, even though they, they will be the ones on the front lines, but we will be the ones at home on our knees praying for them and sacrificing many of our, frankly, many of our wants to be able to fund the work that they are doing. Like I said, the, norm, the, the, the name George Lyle didn't mean anything to me nine months ago. My guess is that for many of you, uh, it likely didn't mean anything before this class, but praise God that we now know about the life and the faithfulness of our brother George and the call for us tonight. Now that we know about the trails that he has blazed before us, the call for us tonight is that we would honor his faithfulness and join him in glorifying God by being faithful in our walk today and the spheres of influence that we do have before us and that we would be a people who pray, that we would be, be a people who give, and perhaps some of you would actually be people who go. So a couple questions for you as you break up into your groups. Um, first one, what internal or external barriers? So this is, this is in... Uh, this is in the vein of, of, speak, of speaking the cultural language to the people that, that we know. What internal or external barriers do you face when sharing the gospel? And what is the next step to overcome this barrier? And the number two, when it comes to supporting foreign missions, how will you grow in praying? How will you go in giving? And, and would you consider going? And if so, what is your next step? If you actually sense the work of God in your life to be, to be one of the few that do go? What would be a next step for you? to? Uh, I, can, can I just suggest one next step that would be helpful? Um, if you do have a sense that, uh, that you may be one who wants to go overseas, um, could you let us know about that? Like, that'd be great. So <laughs> there's a practical next step, right? But there may be others. So um, yeah, once again, thank you so much for jumping into this class. You can break up into your groups. Uh, Discuss these questions. If you don't have a connection group, these tables out in the hallway are for you. Otherwise, find anywhere in the building um, that you can open a door and you can use that. Uh, and if you have kids in Candeo Kids, pick them up at 8. Otherwise, we will give them the rest of that coffee. So, yeah. Thanks for coming, you guys. Good to see you.